0: Thank you, Terry. That uh, accounting of the power of God's love to transform us and change us over time connects a little bit to what we were talking about several weeks ago as we made our way through the story of Abraham through a series of readings. Abraham, of course, was this man whom God called to leave his father's house to go to the land that he would show him. He promised him land. He promised him a family that would grow, and he promised him glory, that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And so we see Abraham responding to this covenant promise with faith. But then comes the needed patience, right? That was the second big focal point. He had to wait for this, and patience is difficult at times, but in the mundane realities of life, God is present and is growing us and changing us as we wait on the transformation of the power of God's love. And then finally, we see that God isn't present just in great moments of celebration and covenant promise like Josephine's baptism a couple weeks ago or in the mundane realities of life where we're called to wait patiently for God to move. But God's also present in those moments of great crises that we face, the difficulties, the challenges, the moments of fear and suffering and confusion where we don't know why. And we looked at the story of Abraham and Isaac as this played out. And so Abraham and Isaac, and then Isaac married Rebekah, and Isaac and Rebekah had two sons, and their names were Jacob and Esau. And So this morning we're coming to the, to the story of Jacob and Esau. And so I invite you to turn to Genesis 25, and beginning with verse 19, I invite you to listen carefully and listen well. This too is the word of the Lord. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of What use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Speak to God. Let's pray together. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing unto you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> so, Generally speaking, I, I probably hope that in a given sermon, uh, Jesus would be lifted up and that there would also be some connection with our lives as well. And that's really the, the two parts of the sermon today. I think this story, the story of Jacob and Esau, uh, points and directs us to Jesus. And, and I also think it's sort of um, a picture of of our lives as well. And I think we can kind of enter into it a bit further today than perhaps we have before. Um, so let's start with how, how these various accounts that we've read this morning point us to Jesus. And you'll remember um, the way of reading the scripture, this, this typological reading in which Old Testament uh, persons created in God's image prefigure or direct our gaze or help sharpen our focus so that we can understand more clearly who God is when he comes to us incarnate in Jesus Christ and so the same is true here Um, the first thing that I noticed in in the text this morning was that that Jacob and Esau were the product of a miraculous birth did you see that in the beginning this wasn't straightforward um, Isaac married Rebekah when we don't know how old Rebekah was, but Isaac was 40 and Rebekah was unable to have children. And so Isaac praised to God for her to be able to have children. Now this was important, especially for Isaac, right? Because Isaac was the son of Abraham and was the inheritor of the promise that God had given to Abraham that through Abraham and through the son that he would give to him, A great nation would emerge. His family would become a great people, as numerous as the sands by the sea and as the stars in the heavens above. Isaac was a bit worried about this. It was his sort of uh, uh, the covenant promise of God to him that he would continue this line and that his family would become great, ultimately to be a blessing to the whole world. Again, like Abraham, he's given a promise And then he has to wait and learn patience as that promise begins to emerge. And so he prays to God that Rebecca would conceive. Again, this promise or this account should not sound too unfamiliar because we just got done the story with the story of Abraham and Sarah. And what did you remember about them? That his name, Abram's name, meant the father of a multitude, and yet he was 75 when God called him to leave his home and go to the land that he would show him, and told him that he would make of him a great nation. And he was older still when the Lord met him under the oak of Mamre, and said, a year from now, Sarah will conceive. And Sarah did what? She laughed in the tent, and she said, I'm this old, to the, I've gotten to this point, and now I'm going to have a child. And so, a year later, what happened? A miraculous birth occurred. A son was given even to Abraham and Sarah, and they named him Isaac, which means laughter. And so they went from uh, cynical laughter to joyous laughter after waiting again for a year. A miraculous birth. You know, in the Scriptures, there's a bunch of these. And it's one way in which our ears can kind of perk up a little bit and say, oh, God is doing something particular here. There was a season of waiting and there was nothing that they saw and then suddenly something happens. It's true for Abraham and Sarah, with Isaac who was born. It's true for Isaac and Rebekah who after praying, then Jacob and Esau were born. It was true for a woman named Hannah who longed for a son and went and prayed to God in the temple and said, uh, if, if, if you will give me a son, I will give him back to you. You remember his name? Samuel. And he became a prophet over all Israel. And he was the prophet who anointed David as the king. Now, if we're thinking in church here, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, uh, Hannah and then Samuel can you think of any other like miraculous birth story that you might have heard once or twice in church before Jesus. yes Jesus in this way in a subtle way we're being prepared over and over again no child prayers a child is given miraculously so that when Jesus comes and this miraculous promise is given oh we've seen this before This is how God prepares us and interacts and helps us to see and for our ears to perk up and for us to pay attention and say, oh, something significant is happening here. It's part of how God readied us for his arrival through the miraculous birth of Jesus. Um, Secondly, I wanted us to notice that these two boys, even in the womb, are at enmity with one another. It's the reason Rebecca prayed. She recognized that they were wrestling inside of her, and she said, God, why is this happening to me? I mean, you you know, probably not the first time that's been prayed, but this particular response came that there were two nations within her, that there were two opposites in some sense within her, and that they were wrestling there within her and that from these children would come two nations distinct from these children in her womb. There's an elder who's strong, and then there is a younger, and yet the elder shall serve the younger. There was an upside down, an inverted aspect to the traditional pattern of things. While we're thinking about this in the context of Scripture, and the context of Genesis for that matter, Can you think of any other story of two brothers who were at enmity with one another? You don't have to go too far in the scripture. Cain and Abel, right? Cain and Abel wrestling at war. And what happens? Cain murders Abel. The first two humans born of natural means. And murder enters into the world. And yet, Adam and Eve had another son, Seth, a younger son, the youngest. And the line passes through Seth on down through the scripture and not Cain. In some sense, the elder has served the younger who was raised up. We see this with Cain and Abel and then Seth. We see this with Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob, the younger, is lifted up and Esau ends up serving him. The promise comes through Jacob's line and Jacob wrestles again with God by the river Jabbok and he's given a new name, Israel. And then Israel has how many sons? Twelve sons. The twelve tribes of Israel. He has twelve sons and Joseph, the youngest at this point, has a coat of many colors, right? And his father favors him, even though he's the youngest. Who's his father? Jacob, the youngest. He fathers his young, favors his youngest son. And what do the older brothers do? They wrestle with him and they throw him into a pit and he's sold into slavery. And yet God's promises are faithful. And Joseph is raised up through the ranks, even in Egypt, the greatest power in the world at this point, until he is over the whole nation. He's the chief administrator of the greatest power in the world at that point in time. And what happens? A famine comes, and his, 12, or his 11 brothers, they come, and they fulfill the, the dream that Joseph had. The reason why they were so angry at him in the first place, they bow down to him. And the elders... The older ones serve the younger who's been raised up. Not just to be raised up, but for their blessing. He provides food. See this motif through the Scriptures. Think of David. We talked about Samuel anointing David. Well, Samuel, the prophet, Hannah's son comes into town and goes to Jesse, David's father, and says, the Lord has sent me here. Bring your sons out. One of them is going to be a king of of Israel. And so he brings all his sons except the youngest, David, the shepherd boy who left in the field. What good is he? He's not even worth mentioning. And Samuel goes through all the older brothers, and none of them are the one that God has chosen. He says, Do you have any more sons? He says, Well, there's one left, but he's the youngest. He's tending the sheep. He says, Bring him. And he brings him. God says, That's the one. And Samuel anoints the youngest king over all Israel, and he is raised up. And the line actually passes through David. Over and over again, you see this pattern. We see it here. And it helps us understand Jesus, the one that Paul calls the second Adam. Within time, the younger. And his humanity descended from the first Adam, the older and who comes and replaces him now in the kingdom. The second Adam who restores the first Adam from his fall and raises him back up. See how all that ties together? Isn't that amazing? Well, then we can look at Jacob and Esau uh, individually. The boys are are born. Uh, Esau comes out. What color is Esau? Esau. Red. What is he covered with? Hair. Well, okay. (laughs) We're in church, and we think about the color red. And what do you think about? Blood. Blood, which is life. But when you see a lot of blood, what do you think about? Death. Esau's the color of red. He's the color of blood. He's, in some sense, the color of death. In fact, did you catch that little hint where he came in and the stew was there and it was red? He said, give me some of that. And then it said, therefore, his name was called Edom. Esau means something like red. Edom is the name of the territory in the south, which is where Esau moved and where his family grew and developed over time. It's a red, arid, dry region. Esau is associated with the southern region, much of it wilderness, that is red. He's red. He wants red soup. Red, the color of blood. Red that reminds us of death. The scriptures tell us that he was a man of the field. He liked to go out and hunt. His father ate of his game and father uh, favored him because of this. He was a man who went out in, in opposition, in some sense, to Jacob, who stayed in the tent. He was a quiet man. He dwelt in the tents. But, so think bird's eye view. Jacob's in the tent, in the center. And Esau is the man who goes out into the wilderness, who goes out to the periphery, who goes out where things are strange and unknown and perhaps dangerous, goes out into the wilderness. Esau's at home where things are known and familiar, where there's identity, which is given in the Father's house, Esau ventures further out. If we think about that in the context of our lives, the farthest place you can go, the the boundary line, if you go as far as you can in life, the boundary line at the edge of existence is death. Isn't it? As far as you can go in life. And then death. Esau is a picture for us of death. I think it's also why he's hairy. Hair is is a little unusual, but, but your hair is symbolic of death. It is at the farthest most extremity of yourself, right? It has no feeling. You can't, you know, it doesn't do anything for you. Um, It's at the boundary. It's at the periphery. Uh, It's as far as you can go. And it'd still be you, right? This is Esau. Um, Of course, we're talking about blood and death and so on. And, And, of course, Jesus is the one who goes from the Father's house into the far country of this world with us. And he goes all the way to the edge. All the way to the boundary of this life. To the, far, to the greatest extremity. Even into death. Which looks like blood. Which is like hair. All these symbolic resonances kind of pile up. So Jesus, in some sense, fulfills Esau. Jesus is the fulf- He gathers up who Esau is, but also completes it in a way. Um, Jacob. Is at home. Bird's eye view again. He's in the place that is familiar. The place where there is structure. He's at the center of things. He's at the house and the home. He's a quiet man. Uh, He's the younger. But Jacob is also classified and spoken of as a trickster, isn't he? Comes out grabbing the heel. That's what Jacob means. Heel grabber. How would you like to be named heel grabber your whole life? right? A heel grabber. Come here. So he's the heel grabber. But he tricks Esau out of his birthright. Esau's the eldest. He's supposed to inherit the name, the lineage, responsibility. Remember, Abraham was not just there with him and Sarah and then Isaac. It was an enormous people. He brought people with him from the north. And those grew over time as he worshipped and set up pillars and evangelized people and told them about God. There was a great people gathered. And Isaac then stepped into this position uh, as the head of the household, as the the place uh, which gave identity to all these people. And it was his home at the center of all of this. And now um, Esau is the one in line, but Jacob tricks him out of his birthright. He promises it. He swears it to him and gives it to him. Again, at the end of his life, remember, uh, Jacob tricks Isaac now, out of the final blessing on his deathbed that was traditional for the father to give to the son. He comes in and he gives him some wild game, which is what Esau gave him. He, he offers something and then he covers his arms with what? Yeah, with wool. Esau was one hairy guy, right? And he tricks his father into thinking it's Esau. and he said, so, so Jacob is whole opening part of the story of his life he's a trickster how how can Jesus fulfill the trickster how is that we usually think of that in negative terms right but I quoted this um, line at Easter Uh, John Chrysostom in his Easter homily lifted up a major motif of Christ's death uh, and resurrection Uh, and and it says basically it's saying that In some sense, Jesus tricked the devil. Chrysostom said, uh, death took a body and discovered God. There's something something hidden there. Took a body, a human body. That's not supposed to be God. And discovered God. Um, That Satan uh, brought Jesus into death, into Hades, and then life swallowed up death because death couldn't contain him. So Jesus is like the true trickster, right? The the, the ultimate trick, which is not false, which is true. He swallows up death and victory. Um, uh, He brings life to the world through self-giving love. That's not the way in which the devil is used to thinking. It's the true way. But in this, this is the devil's blind spot, right? The selfishness versus self-giving love. And so Jesus fulfills Jacob. Indeed, Jesus fulfills all opposites. He joins divinity with humanity. He joins uh, and brings together and resolves holiness and sin. Scriptures tell us that Jesus, who is holy, became sin for us so that we might know and and receive God's righteousness. So Jesus is bringing all these opposites together. Jacob at the center of identity, Esau at the far fringe of death. He brings these back together. Uh, by going into death in the far country, he welcomes us back into the Father's house. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. Right? So Jesus is doing all these things, but these early stories, this story of Jacob and Esau is bringing together themes that point us to Christ. Um, But let's look just for a second at that little story that was included here. How when Esau was out in the wilderness hunting, he was in the field. Uh, He comes home. He's not been successful. He's very hungry. He's starving, in fact. And he comes and hears Jacob, he's got some stew. Uh, He's got his bowl of soup. And Esau comes in and says, Give me something to eat. And Jacob, the trickster, says, sell me your birthright. Give me, give me your birthright now. Right now. Swear it. He'll give you the suit. And so Esau, in that moment of hunger, he says, "What? It, I'm about to die. What good is my birthright to me if I'm dead? Give me the food. And so he takes it and he eats it and he gives his birthright to Jacob. Which in one sense is also an abandonment of his responsibility and his duty. It's a great and and um, uh, and glorious thing to be the head of the household, but it was also one weighted by responsibility and duty to other people to serve them and care for them. Esau abandons that for a bit of soup. What this is is another accounting of the fall. Um, Right, Adam and Eve are given the responsibility of the garden. They're given headship over it. They're responsible for all of it. They have a glorious position in it to, to image God within the creation, certainly, but then also to be stewards of that space. And then the devil comes, the trickster. I said, did God really say? Here, eat of the fruit of this tree. You have the knowledge of good and evil. You will be like God. Here, eat of it. And Eve sees the food. She's tempted by food, just like Esau. Sees the food, notices that it is a delight to the eyes and it's good for food, and she takes it and eats it, and so sins. Esau, he's hungry. He comes, he sees food. It's a delight to the eyes, certainly to the senses. He gives up his responsibility. He abandons his duty. He throws glory aside for a bit of food. Remember, we also connected this to Jesus in the wilderness where, like Esau, he goes out into the place marked by death, right? And he's tempted there by the devil who comes to him and, again, tempts him with food. It's a very basic illustration because it's like, how many times a day do you eat? I mean, Most of us are fortunate enough that we have enough and that we eat three meals and probably some snacks, right? We're familiar with this. You can think through your Christian life in terms of food and your desire for it. And so he's tempted, but he does not give in like Esau. He does not abandon the responsibility he has as Savior of the world. He does not bow down to the devil, but walks faithfully the way of the cross, even to death for our salvation. He doesn't set it aside like Esau does. Now, in all of this, we can see Christ fulfilling these early motifs, these threads as they're coming together but this is also a pretty good picture of, of you. Uh, as a Christian, you are the product of a miraculous birth. You've been prayed for, like Isaac prayed for Rebecca, and then Jacob and Esau. Like Rebecca has prayed for her son's questioning and then is given an answer. You've been prayed for haven't you, in your life? And those of you who have come to the font of baptism, like Josephine the other week, have received a miraculous rebirth. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night and says, what do I need to do here to be saved? And Jesus says, you have to be born again. He says, what in the world does this mean? Do I, how, can I go back into my mother's womb and be born again? It means, it means to be born again a second time. It also means to be born from above. Bob Lowry preached a sermon on that. that's where I learned it about nine years ago. Uh, born again and born from above. Those dual meanings happen here. It's a miraculous birth from God. If you pass through the waters of baptism at the font, you've experienced that. You've been given a miraculous birth, just like these folks we've talked about in Scripture. But also, just as there was a younger and an older wrestling around inside of Rebecca, so there is also an old man and a new man wrestling in you. That's how Paul describes it. The new you is the new you that has been miraculously... Uh, Uh, brought forth through the waters of baptism, joined to Christ, made holy, washed clean, given to share in the identity of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, receiving a new name, having a new purpose, mission, vocation, future, destiny. That is the new you. Made holy in Christ. And yet sometimes Paul says the old you keeps clawing back. And every time you sin... There's that wrestling that's happening inside your soul. In fact, that sin comes because you are hungry for something. And rather than turning to God for it, you, like me, reach for the bowl of soup that's being offered to you as if this will solve everything, this will satisfy you. It's the fruit in the garden, it's the bowl of soup. When Esau comes hungry back home to the Father's house, it's the stones in the wilderness that the devil says, Turn these to bread. You don't need to be hungry. Why should you ever deny yourself anything? You have a miraculous rebirth, but if you're like me, you can also recognize times where you just throw all that aside just for a bowl of soup. What is your bowl of soup? What is the thing that you are tempted to throw everything else away for? It helps to know what that bowl of soup is because as soon as you name it, it doesn't just have implicit and unacknowledged power over you. You can recognize it as something separate from yourself. You can recognize yourself as separate. except separate from it. You can name your desire as its own thing and you can step back for a moment and say, is this actually going to get me where I really ought to be and need to be and am called to be? This story is you. Now, one step back. We talked about Abraham as the man of faith, giving covenant promises like baptism. Abraham, who has to wait patiently for all this to to come about and come into being. That patient waiting we named in the middle of the story for him. And at the moment of crisis, we saw when he's called to sacrifice Isaac there, that even then Jesus stands in. In our story, miraculous rebirth, but you might describe temptation itself as the moments of crisis that flash up in the middle. Sometimes we're successful, sometimes we're not. This is why we look to Jesus Christ, who has stood in for us too, not just Isaac. Even in the face of death, going to the extreme like Esau and emerging victorious out of death, but also in the face of sin and temptation. It is by his victory that we are made holy and clean and that we have victory. We're in the process of receiving that in its fullness. And that's why now the third step for us, really, is patient endurance. So it's a slightly different order for us than what we looked at with Abraham. Abraham had faith in the miraculous promise, waited patiently in the moment of crisis, Jesus intercedes. And for us, we're given a, a promise, and we're called to struggle in the crises that occur, looking to Jesus And wait patiently for the great fulfillment of that. In these stories of the scripture, you can find the Lord Jesus in every single one of them. But you can find you as well. You can learn how to live your life as God's calling you to. It's worth wrestling with.